This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Good afternoon. This is our May 9th, 2023 episode of Tax Tuesday. Today I'm hosting, my name is Elliot Thomas, manager of the Tax Advisors, joined by what I won't call a guest. He's been on here before. He's one of our more experienced tax advisors, been with Anderson for some time now, Kurt Bergford. Good afternoon, everyone. And we are, as our mission is, as Toby talks about, bringing the tax knowledge to the masses. That's the purpose of it, of our Tax Tuesdays. It's where you get to send questions in, and we're going to do our best to answer them. We pick a few of them. Uh, we got quite a broad spectrum of things that we're covering today. A little bit, uh, we sometimes get too much into maybe the, the real estate area or something like that, because we do have a lot of clients asking questions about that. And we certainly have some of that going on today, but we try to expand uh, the questions here into some other areas as well. We were able to do that because of the questions that you send in. Speaking of which, as far as some of the rules when you an- when we bring the questions in, first of all, you can ask them your questions uh, through the Q&A section in Zoom. And we have a dedicated staff to help answer some of those questions. We got uh, Dana, who is an EA as of yesterday. We have Dutch CPA, Jared. Uh, Ross, Sergey, Tanya, and Troy, all all playing in the background, answering your questions through our Q&A section. You can also email the questions to TaxTuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. If you need a detailed response, uh, you will need to become a platinum client or a tax client. We try and make this fun, fast, and educational, try and bring some education about tax to you all. That's one of our goals, and we we just hope uh, you enjoy the show. And Toby will be back. He's just off today, so no worries there. We'll have our boss and loved leader before long. Speaking of which, going to Toby's uh, website here for his YouTube channel. Here you can go ahead and subscribe. He's got all kinds of videos. I think we're looking at 500 plus here. And then we have, um, he's also a best-selling author, author, excuse me, of Infinity Investing, uh, his big book. And he covers a lot of that material in some of his videos as well as other tax uh, items. And um, so by all means, feel free to, to join up into his um, his YouTube. Also, here you can subscribe on the YouTube at aba.link uh, slash YouTube for our replays, which we'll have here. They, they will be on our website, replays of the show. I don't think we take these down anytime uh, soon, so I think they're up there uh, permanently, actually, for better or worse. And we can see questions already coming in. And again, we have the staff there. They're going to get to your questions. Be, please be patient with them. They're trying to get to them all. And uh, we do have a, typically a couple hundred questions that come in at this time. So on to the questions that were sent in today. All right, Kurt, first of all, is it true that you don't pay capital gains or, or dividend taxes if you make less than $40,000? So that's actually a very common question that we get. You know, it seems like the way it's written, you know, when you look on things, the internet is full of this, hey, if I make less than $40,000, are my capital gains subject to 0% tax? And it's kind of a little nuanced answer. When we look at that $40,000, we want to look at what is that $40,000? It actually says if you have taxable income of less than $40,000, your capital gains within that $40,000, because remember, capital gains income would be within your taxable income. So for example, say you had $20,000 of wages and you had $20,000 of capital gain income, that $20,000 of wages would be subject to income taxes. And that $20,000 of capital gain income, because your total taxable income is below $40,000, would be subject to 0% tax. However, you know, a, a lot of times this gets misconstrued. Say you have, again, that same $20,000 of wage income, but then you have a $100,000 capital gain on the sale of a rental property. Well, you just want to make sure that you're, you're, you're thinking about what's actually included in your taxable income. So that's going to include all things, interest, dividends, wage income, capital gains, as, as, as I said before. So anything above that, you know, say you had a hundred thousand dollar capital gain, you had twenty thousand dollars of wages. The first twenty thousand dollars of your capital gain is going to be subject to that zero percent capital gain bracket. But anything above that, you're going to be jumping up to that next fifteen percent capital gain bracket. So remember, there's three capital gain tax brackets. There's zero, 
15, and then 20. Um, if you're if you're single, anything below with your taxable income below 40,000, before 41,675 or 83,350, if you're a married violent couple, will be subject to that 0% capital gain bracket. Um, 15% will go anywhere between, if you're married filing joint, go between about that $83,000 number all the way up to $517,000. So if you have capital gains uh, within that bracket, those will be subject to 15%. And then if you get over that level, if you're really doing well and kind of knocking it out of the park, anything beyond that $517,000, 200 number is going to be subject to that high 20% capital gain rate. Exactly right. So uh, yes, it's possible you get that 0%, but as Kurt pointed out, uh, there is always an asterisk next to that. So we have to do a little calculating. So you might get some zero in there, maybe not if you make too much, but it certainly is a, a real thing. All right, great question. Next, number two, I've been contributing to an HSA for several years. Can I withdraw funds from an HSA for prior medical expenses without a penalty? If so, how far can I go back? Kurt, got some medical expenses. I got an HSA. These expenses came from several years ago. What can I do? Yeah. So that's a really good question, Elliot. And and we actually get this a lot. You know, hey, I've, I've been contributing for an HSA through my employer for several years now. It just dawned on me that I've been contributing to it, but I haven't actually been getting reimbursed or taking a distribution for those qualified medical expenses that I've been incurring during those years. So the IRS says there's technically actually no limit to how far back you can go with those medical expenses to get reimbursement from your HSA. As long as you have good records, you know, receipts, kind of uh, invoices for going to the doctor, things like that, keep those, hold on to them. Um, if you don't want to reimburse yourself in any given year, you can just wait on that uh, and get a reimbursement from your HSA in later years. That's no problem. Very good. So great information there. Next question. Filing out state taxes, filling out, excuse me, uh, state taxes. What are the pitfalls? Do we have to submit a whole state return if you have an investment in that state? So, Kurt, we got our 1040. We're always familiar with that. That's a federal thing. But what about when we have this state objective coming up here for our taxes? Yeah. So everyone's familiar with the federal return and also usually their, their resident state income tax return. Usually your resident state, you're always going to pay taxes on all your income. Say you say you live in one state, but you have rental properties in four or five different states. Your resident state is always going to tax your income always. However, you know, say you live in one state and you have rental properties in two other states. What about those states? They might want to tax that income as well. So it might be a situation where depending on how much income you have in any given state, uh, you might have to file a non-resident income state, uh, non-resident income tax return in various different uh, states. Some states will say like any gross income as a non-resident, if you're earning any income within that state, okay, you're going to have to file a non-resident income tax return in that state to report that income. Other states will say, all right, maybe if you have $1,000 of taxable income, in that state. Maybe that's kind of the threshold. So you want to really be looking at the state rules specifically for each individual property or business. If you're earning money in any given state, you want to look at those rules very closely. Other types of state and local taxes that we want to be aware of, you know, certain states that are don't necessarily have income taxes. An example of that would be Texas, but Texas does have a gross tax receipt. Uh, uh, gross receipts tax. So if you have gross receipts from a business that you're operating in Texas, even if it actually produces no taxable profit after all your deductions, they're kind of looking at your gross receipts to kind of levy some kind of individual tax on, on those gross receipts. Washington State is another example of, of kind of things like a, like a B&O tax. Uh, what is it? A business and operations tax. In Washington yep. Yeah. So, you know, other kind of things related to that. California, another great example, the franchise tax fee, essentially it's more or less a tax 
for the right to do business in California. So if you have kind of uh, income or businesses in various different states, I want to just keep a very uh, clear kind of uh, guideline of, of what you're doing in those states and, and what those states' rules are related to the activities that you're doing. Very good. Yeah, is it possible to talk state tax without California sneaking in there? Probably not. <laughs> and yeah. I know we have a lot of clients there and always. So yeah, those are some of your, your uh, pitfalls, 50 different states, 50 different rules. So that's probably one of the biggest pitfalls, I would say. Uh, it also is talking to Dutch, uh, who was helping us out here earlier today. And uh, he also mentioned something on some of these bigger investments you might get into, bigger partnerships, perhaps. Uh, they also sometimes have a consolidated or condensed report, uh, 1065 uh, report that they're going to throw out there, where they actually do the withholding for you, which is a little bit different, unique. That will All that information would come through your K-1, but uh, we don't run into that often. But he was just pointing that out as something that's a little bit different on some of the states. So again, lots of states, lots of rules. Thank you, Kurt. All right, let's get on to the next one. Our LLC is taxed as a partnership sold five long-term rental properties and then acquired one new rental property in a 1031 like-kind exchange. The original LC still owns additional properties. So maybe we had 10 in there, we sold five, we picked up one, we got six potentially in there. Now we want to move the newly acquired, that's what we call the replacement property or 1031. We want to move it into a new LC to be taxed as an S corporation for asset protection, makes sense. And because the new property will be short-term rental. All these reasons we want to get into an S-Corp is what we're thinking. How soon can we do that, Kurt, without causing any problem with our 1031 exchange? Furthermore, the original LLC and the new LLC uh, shares uh, the same owners and ownership percentage. There's no boot in the transfer. What say you, Kurt? Yeah, so the issue you're going to come up with here is that you are going from a 1031 transaction from what was presumably a partnership originally into a corporation. And that might be an issue for 1031 purposes. You're, you're not staying with the, with the tenant of a 1031 exchange where you're going from taxpayer to taxpayer. A situation where you're moving properties from one LLC into a new LLC, which is taxes and S-Corp, that's a different taxpayer. That's gonna, that's gonna potentially blow up your 1031 exchange. So we're going to be wanting to be very careful about doing that. And probably that's not going to work too well. But in terms of timeline, you know, we really don't have a timeline here because it's not so much about the time. It's about that you're going from one taxpayer, which presumably is an LLC tax as a partnership, to another taxpayer, which is not taxed as a partnership with the same partners and partnership percentages but instead you're going from a partnership to a corporation. And that's just gonna, uh, again, it's, it's, it's probably gonna uh, disqualify your 1031. So we wanna be really careful about that, but uh, there might be ways to work around, Elliot. Is, is, that, uh, is that fair you know, to, to kind of do what the client is trying to accomplish here? I don't know of any way really to work around that because as you point out, we have a taxpayer as a partnership, it really needs to receive that property. S corporation is a whole different EIN, a whole different tax reporter than that partnership. Now, we sometimes run across scenarios where we're making reference to the facts that you give at the end here. Hey, we have one LLC with the same uh, owners as another LLC, same percentage ownership, same people, et cetera. But that's usually where you have one partnership and you want to move it into another partnership. That's not what we're doing here. We're going from a partnership arrangement into a corporation. Well, it's an S corp. It's still a corporation, by at least in some hybrid form. So this is something I don't think we could probably do anytime soon, moving property out there. And furthermore, we're not going to recommend you put property into an S corporation as a general rule because you never want to put appreciable, <coughs> excuse me, appreciable assets into an S corporation for tax purposes. Now here, I know we're doing it as a short-term rental, and that sounds more like an active business. So why not a corporation? Well, again, because it's an appreciable asset and we get hit with taxes later on if we ever want to take it out or something like that, which most often we get to the point where we do at some point. But Kurt, there's got to be something else that we can do to bridge that idea of, hey, maybe I still, okay, I keep it under the partnership in a disregarded LLC, keep Anderson happy. But is there something I can do with the activity of the short-term rental 
maybe with an S corporation? Do we got any avenues for me there, Kurt? Yeah. So actually, potentially, you know, because the short-term rental most often is going to be considered an active trader business. So if you're operating that directly out of that partnership, conducting that act, that short-term business directly out of that partnership, most likely the partners of that partnership are going to be hit with self-employment tax. We might not want to, might not want to do that. However, there might be a workaround. Maybe we can set up a master lease to another S Corp that you have set up. You know, maybe we set up a, an S Corp where that partnership actually leases that 1031 property to this new S Corp. And then that S Corp actually is able to conduct the active trader business. Again, the benefit there would be that the, the actual S Corp is conducting the short term rental, doing the active trader business, cut down on self employment tax. Take advantage of some of the uh, benefits of the S Corp, you know, accountable plan, maybe two ADA reimbursements. That might be a good way to, to kind of hedge some of that profit in that short-term rental business. Excellent idea. So we could still keep with our 1031, keep it on a partnership, and then through the master lease, still take advantage of some of that short-term rental activity. As Kurt points out, active business now under an S corporation, use those reimbursements, so on and so forth. Great plan. Uh, hopefully that helps you out on that one. All right, moving on. I recently incorporated myself as a member in my husband's LLC. We decided to be treated as an S Corp. I've heard that we need to determine our W-2 salary based on our level of engagement each of the m- members have in the business. How can we determine our percentages? We run a residential business in California. He does service part. I do the admin and advertising and bookkeeping. What do you got for us, Kurt? Yeah, so that's a great question. A common question we get asked. You know, I've I've heard I got an S corp set up. You know, I've heard I, I I need a need to take a wage out. You know, what what do I need to take that wage wage base out on? You know, what are the requirements of that wage? So on and so forth. So yes, it's true that if you have an S corp and you're a shareholder of that S corp, you materially participate in that S corp. The S corp's profitable in any given tax year. And you want to take distributions out of that S corp. That yes, some of the income, instead of letting all the income flowing uh, flow through that uh, K one that that S corp tax return gives you at the end of the year, you're going to have to take some of the income out as a W two. You know how much is uh, how how much you have to take, and you know the IRS says you got to take what is called a reasonable salary. So what is reasonable? Reasonable could mean a lot of different things, and it kind of depends on some different factors. Uh, but we, what we like to say oftentimes is anywhere between uh, about 30 to 50% of your kind of cut of the income from the S Corp. If again, if you, you know, you're working in the S Corp, you're participating, uh, you want to take distributions out is going to be have to, going to have to be taken out as a salary. So uh, in this example, you know, it looks like husband and wife are kind of running the uh, uh, running the S corp. It looks like uh, uh, maybe one one member is kind of doing uh, what was it the the bookkeeping there, and then the other uh, the husband is kind of doing the service part. You know, you're going to want to take a look at you know, okay, we're running this S corp in Southern California. What is a reasonable salary for, you know, if you're doing bookkeeping 20, 25 hours a week, what is a reasonable salary for a bookkeeper with kind of comparable technical knowledge, a lot of the same experience that you have for that kind of role? Is that 20,000? Is that 80,000? Um, kind of depending on what you're doing, but take a look at those. You know, you can, you can scope out and, and, and go to maybe go to indeed.com, maybe go to sites like Glassdoor mint.com to get you an idea of what is a reasonable salary for that kind of kind of those responsibilities that if you were going to go get a job from a third party, you know, doing that same work, how much would you expect to be paid? So if that's kind of in line with 30 to 50%, great. You know, if it's drastically lower or drastically higher, you know, you want to kind of analyze it a little bit further, but if if that amount is somewhere between that thirty to fifty percent range of a reasonable salary, great. You know, uh, just kind of find what a, a good compensation level for you is. Go through and run that uh, that through payroll and 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 pay yourself that amount. 
Sounds good. So yeah, S Corporation, we always have that requirement for reasonable wage. If we take any distribution, as Kurt pointed out, might want to look at some online uh, sources to see what does the average person make doing what you're doing, your experience, et cetera. All good suggestions for getting that that wage. As far as your percentage of ownership in the business, uh, that really is up to you uh, to determine. Um, A lot of our our clients, if there's couples going into it, they do go 50-50, but um, that's really up to you to determine the percentage of ownership in the S corporation. All right, carrying on. I'm thinking of transferring my primary residency into an LLC that I own and turning it into a rental. Can you explain how I should make the transfer so that I can get uh, the 121 exclusion and and have higher basis for the property in the LLC? I thought there were some exclusions in Section 121 that disallow such a transaction. So I got my personal residence, Kurt. I've been living in it. We got the rules for uh, 121 perhaps coming in here, but I want to turn it into a rental. How can I take advantage? Can I take advantage of 121 and still have it in an LLC as a rental, maybe with some stepped up basis or something like that? What do you got for us? Yeah. So this kind of poses a unique uh, situation for uh, actually a lot of clients uh, come to us with this kind of similar situation. They've had a primary residence that maybe they bought, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago at say 200,000. Maybe it's uh, gone up to 850, and with this kind of last market run up, you know, hey, we we clearly meet the qualifications for 121 exclusion on a primary residence. We've used this primary residence uh, as a primary residence for at least uh, two of the last five years. We've owned it for at least two years. You know, we want to capture up to that five hundred thousand dollar exclusion that the IRS allows us to take advantage of. With the sale of a rent or sale of a primary residence, however, we don't just really want to sell the property. This market is uh, is is great for renters. You know, is is uh, is great to rent this property out. We don't want to just get rid of it. It would make a great rental property. We're just trying to do something different in our life. Maybe we can combine these strategies. So, in that scenario, what we can do is actually set up an LLC, tax as an as an S corp, and and remember. Elliot said this before, we almost never put appreciable real estate within an S-Corp. This might be the only exception that I know of that we get to disregard that rule. So as a general rule, we never put appreciable real estate within an S-Corp. However, in this, this kind of conclu- in this situation, because that LLC taxes as an S-Corp is a different taxpayer than us, we can actually sell our primary residence to that LLC tax as an S-Corp. It's a separate taxpayer. So we can actually get the 121 exclusion, that $500,000, up to $500,000 of capital gain exclusion from the sale of our primary residence. And then what happens? We have, a, we have an LLC that we own. We're, we're the shareholders of it. The LLC tax as an S-Corp that we own that owns this rental property. What did we buy the rental property for? Um, say we bought it for, we've got to buy it for fair market value. So say that's, you know, in, in this kind of example, seven, $800,000, something like that. We've almost ex- excluded most of the gain there, if not all of it. And then the rental property can be rented out to a third party tenant and we're able to depreciate the entire purchase price that we paid, that the LLC paid for that and have a bunch more depreciation. And, and, and that's really going to help mitigate some of the, uh, the rental income. And hopefully that will kind of produce uh, almost a, a zero tax implication or tax rental income, taxable rental income on that LLC taxes and support. Excellent. So a little way... Uh, a, a, a little explanation of how we can take advantage of both the 121 uh, and that stepped-up basis. Uh, just a lot of good tax information there. Make sure we're giving it to an S corporation. Uh, just a reminder, you know, we got to pay all that tax in the year that we sold it. But uh, nonetheless, uh, you get you get a lot of uh, tax benefit here. Get a wipe out maybe up to half a million dollars in in an in, in taxable gain there. Very good. All right, next slide. Just reminding us. Now we have our Orlando asset tax and asset protection workshop coming up. 
Uh, it's going to be May 18th to the 21st, uh, as I said, in Orlando. And I believe, Kurt, you're going to be there as well, yes? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, thinking I'm going to be there next week. Uh, so it will hopefully the, the weather is great in uh, Orlando. And if any of you guys on here will be uh, be there. I look forward to seeing you. Going to see the Mickey Mouse and all that too? Oh, I can't wait. My, my <laughs> first time in Florida. So, you know. It's, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> you got to go. I, I got to see Mickey Mouse and an alligator. That's that's those are my two goals. <laughs> it's his bucket list. You got it right yeah. here. Got to have it's a mouse ears. All right. So as a reminder, 18th to the 21st, if you're around, get down to Orlando, beautiful area, Florida, and you're going to hear from the gurus themselves live. What's going on? You're going to have Kurt there to answer tax questions or just about anything else. And he's going to become an alligator expert for us and bring that all back to us here at Anderson. Yeah. So next question. Um, hey, I love the podcast. I was wondering if you could speak about how options are taxed, specifically a credit spread where the profit I receive is only the spread between the leg I sold and the one I bought. Would I pay capital gains on the profit of the spread or the entire premium I receive, i.e., does that option I bought and subsequently expire? worthless, is that considered a capital loss? Additionally, when I sell a covered call, does it lower the cost basis of my stock? It seems that my pro my brokerage displays a lower cost basis. If so, it would seem that the IRS double dips by charging capital gains on the options sold and considers my profit as qualified capital gains. Thank you for your clarity. Much appreciated. So that's uh, that's a, a mouthful. What what do you say, Elliot? <laughs> so yeah, we got a lot going on in this question. And as I said earlier, you know, Kurt and I get a handle an awful lot in the uh, the real estate realm as far as questions. Really like this one because we talk about trading structures and things like this, but this even takes us out further into the options world. A lot of difficult context here. Some of you may want to just, if you're just real estate, you may want to just hit the snooze button here for a second, but we're going to go through the best as uh, we can here. First of all, what is an option? Option is simply the right to buy or sell stock at a certain price, which we call the strike price, during a set period of time. That's all an option is. Now here, we're looking at something a little bit different, the credit uh, spread with these options. And what that means is that occurs when you sell an option at one strike price, and then you go out and you buy another one at a different strike price. And we call those legs. Leg one, you go out and you sell an option, the right to sell or buy stock. And then leg two, later on, you go and buy an identical uh, option for the same stock, uh, identical one at a different strike price. So there's some definitions going on there. Now, often if you look at this kind of commentary, they'll talk about netting the two uh, legs to get to uh, what's called a net credit. That's not from a tax perspective, what the way the IRS looks at it, they look at the two legs independently. And whenever we talk about an asset, stock no different, you have what you paid for it, that's our basis. We're going to have that in leg one. We're going to have a, a, a purchase price or basis for stock two or for leg two, excuse me, as well when we uh, purchase the option. And the first one, when we sell the option, I sell an option to to Kurt for, let's say, he pays me $5 for it for the right to buy stock at $20. We call that the premium. He pays me $5 a premium. Right now, that's my basis in that first leg. Down the line, if I go out and I buy another option to fill out the uh, credit spread here, then I'm going to pay somebody for that option. Whatever I pay for it is going to be my basis on that second leg. So we know we got these two points. We call them legs. We know what their basis is. It's just like if I go out and buy a house, I pay for something, whatever I paid for it, that's my basis, no different here. But now we get to where we're trying to calculate some gains and it gets a little fuzzy, especially when we talk about the first leg. I think that's probably the most difficult. We're going to handle that first. And the reason it's kind of challenging is because there's different results that can occur. There's three different results. So again, Kurt paid me $5 a premium for the right, an option, to do something at $20 with his stock. Well, what if he doesn't do anything? We call that letting the option expire. If he doesn't do anything, Kurt paid me $5. I put it in my pocket. It's my money. 
All I have to do is pay tax on that. Now, it will be short-term capital gains. And this is a unique area in the code where it doesn't matter how long I held that. Even if it was over a year, which typically these don't go that long, but even if it was, it's going to be short-term capital gains regardless. So that's the first uh, thing that can happen on that first leg as far as our, our taxes. The second is, well, what if Kurt actually exercises the options? Well, now we have a divergent path. It depends on what type of option it was. And we got two of those, one, a put option. And a put option is the right for Kurt to sell stock at that stock price and my obligation to purchase at that strike price. Okay, so again, he paid me $5, strike price was 20. He's saying I got to buy his stock at $20. Okay, well, what we do with that premium is even though I paid for it at 20, we usually say that's the base. Because I got $5, we're going to lower the base down to $15, okay? So our new base, in this case, is a basis is $15. And then if I sell a stock above $15, well, I have gain, capital gain. If it was over a year, well, then it's long-term. But what if I sell less than $15? Well, then if I sold at 10 well, I'm going to have a $5 loss, capital loss. That's all we do with the put. But what if it was the other option where we have a call option? And again, a call option is the right for Kurt to buy stock and my obligation to sell him the stock. It's the exact opposite as the put in that sense. And so what we have here, if he exercises that, he's forcing me to sell the shares at $20. But remember all the way in the back there, he gave me that $5 premium, okay, to buy the option. I'm going to take that $5 and add it to my proceeds from when I sold him the stock at $20. So I got $25. Now, is that a gain or loss? Well, it depends. What did I originally buy the stock at? If I bought it at $22, sold at $25, got a $3 gain. But if I bought at $30 and I'm selling at $25 with that $5 premium, I got a loss of $5. And that's how we determine that first leg of what's going on our basis and whether we have a gain or how it's handled. Okay. But we have that second leg. Remember where I went out and I had to purchase an option. Okay. Oh, excuse me, before we get to that, we have the third possibility. That was where he exercised the stock. But another is where I go out and I just purchase an option to settle everything. So we call it closing out. And in that case, uh, all I do, if I go out and I buy a similar option, let's say I paid uh, $7 for it. Well, Kurt originally paid me 5 I sold at 7 So I'm out $2, $2 loss, capital loss. Alternatively, if I bought at 3 and I originally got $5. Well, then three minus five, I have a $2 gain. So that was for the three options for our first leg of how we would determine the taxes. Now moving over to the second leg where I went out and bought an option on that second leg. Whenever I buy something, we talked about this earlier, that's going to be my basis. So whatever I bought that option for, if I paid $10 for it, there's my starting basis. Now, later on, I'm going to sell that option. And if I sold it for, say, $12, well, I bought it 10, sold at 12. $2 gain. If I sell for less than that, say $7, well, now I have a $3 loss. But what if I don't do anything? What if I let it expire? Well, remember, I originally paid $10 out there. I'm out of pocket $10 for this option. If I don't do anything, we consider that a sell at zero. And so I have a $10 loss. And getting back, when we take that all into consideration, that really is what we're getting at in this question as far as uh, the credit spread. You know, if, if, uh, we look at the, the legs independently and determine their basis and the, and the gains accordingly, if it expires worthless in the case of a, the second leg or something like that, uh, if I had to pay out for it, well, then I have a loss. In the case of the, if I'm selling an option and I just get the premium and it expires, well, then I have a gain. So it'll depend on which side we're on that. Also, when you're talking about the covered call under this section, sometimes you see this lowered basis. We only see the lowered basis typically. Uh, under the uh, the uh, credit spread, as I said, when you get the uh, put option where we take that premium of $5 and we reduce our basis for it. In the case of selling in a call, we're actually going to add it to the amount we sold. So what's actually going on in your, your, your uh, brokerage accounts here, I'm not sure why they're changing. There may be some cost of purchasing these things going on or something like that. Uh, they're changing it, but th that's to my knowledge, the only time we're going to have an impact on that basis with the, with the premium going on. So we may not be able to exactly help you on why you're seeing a difference, but it has probably something to do with some expenses and things like that. Are we good to go on that one, Kurt? 
Yeah, excellent, excellent. Hey, everybody can wake up, back up. We're going to get back to something normal. (laughs) All right. And this came in three parts, but they're all relevant and good. So I wanted to hit all three of them. Number one, do you recommend putting a home that will be a flip into an LLC? Do I want some LLC protection for a flip? What are the tax pros and cons? Can you reuse that same LLC name? Good questions. Number two, if we buy and hold and decide six months later to sell, can we reuse an LLC name? And is the physical address tied to that LLC? I know it will be deeded over to the LLC. In other words, things keep changing. How does one go about making the changes to the LLCs and how important is it to have an address match the LLC? Wanting to make changes without huge costs being attached. Good question, especially when you're getting started and trying to learn all this. Good questions. And then finally, living trust. Do you recommend every new property be included in your living trust? With Anderson, can properties be added or taken out without a huge expense? Would you add homes if you're only going to own them for less than six months? Any ideas on any of that, Kurt? Yeah. So let's start with that first one. Uh, Do you recommend putting a home that will be a flip into an LLC? What are the tax pros, cons? Can you reuse that same LLC? So yes, if you're going to be flipping, we absolutely do not want you to be flipping out of your own individual name. If something goes bad with a flip and it's in your own name, we want any kind of liability from that flip to stay with that flip uh, in that LLC. We don't want your own personal name being attached to it at all. So definitely, if you're going to be flipping any kind of home, put that into an LLC. I'm going to skip ahead just one second. Can you ref- can you reuse that same LLC name for a different flip? I'm going to say you can, but we're not going to recommend that. That's the same kind of thing where say you did one flip uh, in one LLC, something went wrong with it, and then you reuse that LLC to do a different flip. Say there's a property you know that new flips in that that same LLC, some kind of issue comes along uh, with that old flip. Who's going to get sued in that circumstance? That LLC, which now has the new flip in it. You're exposing the assets, that new flip uh, in that that old LLC to the liabilities of the old flip. So we're really going to recommend one LLC per flip. And then kind of skipping back here, what about the taxes? So you know that's a very important point. We kind of touched on the liability issues, but what about the taxes? Usually, you know, flipping is considered an active trader business. It's not like holding passive rental and passive rental real estate. Uh, It's not like that. It's it's you're conducting an active business. And what is the issue with conducting an active trader business? You might be subject to self-employment taxes on the profits that you make when you do those flips. So usually, when we're talking about structuring for flips, what we might do is set up some kind of corporation for you. Sometimes it's going to be a C-corp. Sometimes it's going to be an S-corp, kind of depending on your own unique situations, but usually a corporation of some sort. And then we're going to have an LLC that is going to be disregarded for tax purposes to that corporation. And, And what that's going to do is any income from that individual flip held in that LLC, instead of filing a tax return for that LLC, that income or loss from that flip is going to be reported on that corporation's tax return. We're going to avoid the self-employment tax, no matter what kind of corporation it is. And uh, we'll, we'll have the additional benefits of certain kinds of corporations. You know, with the C, you'll get uh, health reimbursement arrangements, uh, you know, medical expenses reimbursed. With a C or an S, you're going to be able to take advantage of that accountable plan. All your business expenses can be conveniently reimbursed to you, you know, maybe take advantage of the 280A, get some corporate meetings in there and really knock down that kind of extra profit that you have on the flip. So from a tax point of view, that's usually how we're going to do that. So, hey, uh, number two here, if we buy and hold uh, and decide six months later to sell, can we reuse that LLC name? And is the physical address tied to that LLC? I know it will be deeded over to the LLC. In other words, Things keep changing. How does one go about making the changes to an LLC? And how important is it to have an address match that LLC? Wanting to make changes without huge costs being attached. 
Very good question. So here, this is kind of a situation where we don't have a flip. We have a buy and hold. Usually with buy and holds, we're going to attach, you know, we're going to put that buy and hold, that rental property, its own LLC. And that LLC is going to be owned by your Wyoming holding company. Uh, so say six months later, you know, we decide to sell. Can you reuse that LLC? Again, same kind of concept before. You technically can, but we're not going to recommend it because, you know, who knows what happened during that six months. You know, maybe we rented to someone uh, who, 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 who had some kind of situation and, and there ends up being some liability coming back from that property. You know, do we want to be unnecessarily jeopardizing any new property that we that we place in that LLC by the activities that are long gone now? You know, let's just clean the slate, get a new LLC in there and go from there. So... I don't really think the issue with the physical address tied to that LLC, you know, for example, often we'll do 123 Main Street LLC. Uh, if you had a different property name, I don't think that would be an issue. It's more so the liability issue. And so we really don't want to reuse those LLCs that, that much. Again, having the addresses match, not a huge deal. We just don't really want to keep those old LLCs around for asset protection. And then three, uh, the living trust. You recommend every new property be included in your living trust. With Anderson, can properties be added and taken out without a large expense? Would you add homes you will only own for less than six months? So yeah, about that living trust. You know, the way we kind of structure the living trust we set up here, the attorney set up here. The living trust actually will never actually own any of your rental properties, any of your businesses, any of your corporations per se. What will usually happen is your Wyoming holding company, uh, you know, that holds the properties to your various LLCs that hold your rental properties, the ownership of your Wyoming holding company might be placed in your living trust. So that the Wyoming holding company owns everything, all the individual rentals. So when you get a new rental, you know, you're just adding on an LLC to that Wyoming holding company and the actually ownership of your Wyoming holding company is held within your living trust. Similar to like, you know, if you have a corporation like we talked about before, you know, you're, you're doing the flips with the LLCs, uh, each LLC, you know, per flip kind of thing. Again, None of those LLCs are actually going to be owned by your living trust. The corporate shares, the, the C-Corp shares, the S-Corp shares, those might be owned by your living trust. And, and that's very easy to assign over. Our attorneys uh, on our attorney helpline can help with, uh, if you have a Wyoming holding company and it's owned by you individually, you have a, a C-Corp you know, and your, the shares are owned by you individually, you set up a living trust. Uh, it's usually a pretty easy transition. Uh, get in touch with our Anderson attorneys. Uh, call the helpline. Uh, they'll get the right amendments, the redactments, whatever needs to be done to move that ownership of your various businesses over to your living trust. Wonderful. All right. Then moving on to our next, to the last question, I think, the second to last. If I'm filing my 2022 tax as an S-Corp, which retirement plan should I choose to put my money into my retirement? My CPA told me to put it into a profit sharing plan. We often talk about solo 401ks or something along those lines with the, the, the PSP account, which I'm not familiar with. Can I put it into a SEP IRA? What are the main differences between those two accounts and which one would you recommend to open? Kurt, any ideas? Yeah. So, you know, uh, what, what you really need to remember in this situation is to actually fund any tort, any type of retirement plan, uh, or contribute to any retirement plan. You're going to need earned income from the business. Seemed like you filed an S Corp in this situation. Uh, presumably, as we talked about before, if you were profitable within that S Corp, you had to pay yourself some sort of wage. So you're going to have some amount of earned income. So it kind of depends on, on how much that was, but you should be able to contribute either to a solo 401k or a SEP IRA. 
So uh, a, a SEP IRA is going to be kind of your own individual retirement uh, account where a solo 401k is going to be sponsored by that S-Corp. You actually need the S-Corp to sponsor that uh, qualified retirement plan, that 401k. So they're kind of very similar in, in some ways, but there are some differences. And um, again, you're going to need earned income to contribute to either one, but how much you can actually contribute to either one will kind of depend on, on either one and, and, and kind of uh, how that works. So I think the main idea here is that with the SEP, we're, we're talking about kind of a, a profit sharing component. Uh, it still should be 25% of your compensation, but you're going to need much higher wages to max out that SEP than you would if you had a solo 401k. If you were a solo 401k, you know, uh, you're allowed to first use that fully, uh, the employee deferral, that 20500 can go for your employee deferral. And uh, I think in 2023, the difference uh, should be 66000 total that you can dump into that solo 401k. I think in 2022, $61,000 total. So if the first 20500 goes to the employee deferral, that leaves 40500 that could go to that profit sharing component. So, you know, when we talk about how much of a wage we need to max out to get to that max, uh, you know, fully fund that retirement plan, you're looking at about $162,000 wages within that sole, within your S Corp to pay yourself a salary of about $162,000 uh, so that you can fully fund that $40,500 employer portion um, profit sharing component. So kind of when we compare that to what it would be if it was a, a SEP, you're going to need a lot higher wages. I think you're going to need about 245000 of wages to max out the SEP. So you might just want to keep that in mind that you know with the solo 401k, you're actually able to pay yourself a little less, say, well, I mean, not even a little less, $80,000 less to actually max out that retirement plan uh, and that's going to be those wages that you pay yourself are going to be subject to payroll taxes. So when you talk about advantages, dis disadvantages, the solo 401k is definitely going to save you some payroll taxes if your goal is to max out that retirement plan. Very good point. Excellent. So and and typically, and I'm sorry if, if Kurt brought this up, your SEP usually is a more inexpensive plan. So that might be a pro for the SEP IRA. But Profit sharing plans maybe cost a little bit more, but you need to you need to pay yourself less in earned income. And also, with a, if if it's one that Anderson sets up, we have a quite a an open book for what you can invest in. Whereas the SEP IRA might have a more narrow investment uh, uh, world that you can get into, mainly real estate. Uh, SEP IRA plans may not allow for real estate investment. Some might. But uh, I know that our, our 401ks, solo 401ks are quite broad in what you can invest in. Very good points. Thank you, Kurt. All right. Moving on to, I think this is our last question. I heard I can pay my kids to do some work for me without any tax implications. What's the limit I can pay them? And what are the requirements? Kurt, help the parents out there. What do we got? Yeah, so great strategy. You know, using your kids and your business, you know, put them to work, kind of teach them a little bit about you know, earning a paycheck, you know, benefit for you. You know, if you pay your kids uh, in the course of your business, you know, that's going to be a deduction, a tax deductible deduction to your business. And also that's going to be income on them. So, you know, the big thing about paying, uh, paying kids is you want to make sure that you're not necessarily incurring a tax liability for them, you know, maybe a tax filing for them while getting the tax deduction. So, we want to look at uh, you know paying kids again. They're going to need to be doing something. They can't just be sitting them around, you know, throwing them on payroll. They really need to be doing something. So you know, it can be it can be anything. You know, uh, doing yard work, taking out the trash, doing filing, maybe doing the internet internet market research. I know a lot of kids these days are pretty savvy with the internet. Maybe some of the uh, the actual business owners are not as savvy with with the tech. You know, get get them involved with with that. You know, sure, have them start looking up properties. Maybe you're into flipping and, and you're looking for properties to locate. 
get them on the internet, searching for properties for you, document their time, document their hours, treat them like any other employee that you have, kind of have them on time cards, uh, get them at, uh, filling out W-2s, you know, run, run payroll for them uh, throughout the year, issue them a W-2. Usually for kids, you know, if we, if we pay them about in 2023, the, uh, we, we're, we're looking to pay them probably lower than the standard, their standard deduction. So they're going to have gross income of say 13,800. Well, what, what happens? That's gross income that, you know, usually they would have to pay taxes on. But in the, in, on their personal tax return, they're going to get a standard deduction. So, you know, in 2023, the standard deduction, uh, for them is going to be about 13,800. They get to deduct that off the amount of wages, uh, they were paid. And what's their actual income tax liability? Big zero. It's a, it's a win for you because you get the deduction and essentially they get, uh, tax free income. You know, maybe you could consider, or maybe they consider uh, kind of using that uh, that earned income, that wage that they get paid uh, to fund a, a Roth IRA or something, get them going for college, getting them kind of set up for you know a, a first home or first business, whatever they want to do. So it's a kind of win-win for the family. Very good. And that takes us to the end of our questions. Just a reminder, we can get on to Toby's uh, subscription for YouTube. I actually don't know what the... Uh, address is. But nonetheless, just Google Toby Mathis and YouTube and you'll find it. All kinds of videos out there. A lot of the topics that we talked about today, uh, he's no stranger to all types of tax questions. And uh, we look forward to having him back. Uh, But he is out, uh, like I said, for this week. And uh, then I think, uh, again, just a reminder, when you send questions in for us to pick out, you can email us at taxtuesday at andersonadvisors.com and visit us at andersonadvisors.com or our, our main website page there. Just a thanks again to our staff, Matthew helping out with all the tag, the tech part of everything. we got Jennifer G and Alexis running the show, keeping us all in order. And then all those people pumping out the answers for all the questions. We've got Dana, Dutch, Jared, Ross, Sergey, Tanya, Troy, <clears throat> excuse me if I missed anybody, over 118 questions already answered. Uh, they're bringing it. And uh, thank you so much all for bringing the questions. We went all over the tax world today. We had... Uh, Capital gains, state taxes, gosh, uh, S corporations, and of course we uh, we had the uh, the the selling of options and things like that, and uh, well, we made it through that one. And then with S corporations, reasonable wages, so on and so forth. It's all because of you sending in the questions. Thank you again. Please send them in, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in two weeks. Thanks, everyone. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.